0: From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry.
1: My dad said to stay out of it. He said, "Don't go into the shoe business." So, of course, I made every effort not to. I Got a chance to work for a medical company for a short period of time, doing uh, helping with uh, with the engineering department and their inter-aortic balloons, if you're familiar with those. It's a, a device to assist in a heart that's failing uh, to keep the patients alive. Um, but then moved into um, working in an industrial design company for a short period of time when I realized I needed to find something more interesting.
0: That was Paul Bates. Paul's an additive manufacturing lead project engineer at ASTM. He's an experienced practitioner of the safe use of added manufacturing in both the commercial space and the training space. Paul has used almost every form of 3D printing over the last 20 years to develop both prototype and finished goods. He's developed business justifications for the use of these technologies, as well as designed and built the facilities that house them through his work at Reebok, UL, and now ASTM. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Paul, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. I'm excited for the conversation. I've known you for a while and I'm excited to kind of um, share this conversation with the rest of the audience. And so uh, we always begin these these episodes to kind of Put some context with with all the guests and and where they came from and kind of how they got on the track towards additive so let's start at the very beginning kind of where are you from kind of what kind of was your first kind of baby steps into kind of where you are today with with additive manufacturing
1: okay where am i from you mean location wise or <laughs>
0: yeah early on like where where did you grow up where were you born
1: uh, i was born in massachusetts and uh moved around a bit. My dad was in the shoe business and we traveled from wherever there were factories open to uh, to keep working. And uh, I lived in, in, uh, in Maine for a while and out in Ohio for a brief period of time. And then uh, ultimately ended back up in Massachusetts when I started working.
0: Awesome. And so what was the, do you stay in the, in the shoe business? Was, was that kind of the first?
1: Oh, uh, my, first my dad said to stay out of it said, don't go into the shoe business. So of course I made every effort not to, I got a chance to work for a medical company for a short period of time doing, uh, helping with uh, with the engineering department and their inter aortic balloons. If you're familiar with those, it's a, a device to assist in a, a heart that's failing uh, to keep the patients alive. Um, but then moved into um, working in an industrial design company for a short period of time, when I realized I needed to find something more interesting and started for a uh, company that supplied orthotics or those those uh, footbeds in shoes. Um, and uh, once I started doing that, and got into the tooling. Uh, it opened up the career of getting into the footwear business.
0: And so, when you were growing up, did you get to see some of the like see inside some of these factories that your dad was working on? Was was that a?
1: It was a, a common experience to go, you know, visit dad because he worked. You know, in those days, you worked Saturdays. You worked whenever you had to get work done. So we would go in together and I would hang out in the factory and and uh, go assist the box maker one day, cause I was bored and he wasn't afraid to give me a very sharp knife at a young age and and uh, just played around the factory and got exposed to the different steps it took to make shoes and get to hang out in the leather storage bins for a while. Cause that's always a, a unique experience. Um, and then, you know, that, that really, pointed out how, how things are made and and how factories work and how all those steps that are needed to put things together and and how each one influenced the other was, was really kind of neat to learn at a young age.
0: I'm sure. And it kind of gives you some context of kind of what potential jobs are out there, at least when you're working with your hands and doing.
1: Yes. I learned right away that the cement, the cement application people was not the job for me. It was dirty, and the chemicals were nasty, and I knew right away that's not where I want to be. Yeah.
0: And so, what kind of uh, after the medical device area, kind of where where was the the first introduction to to three D printing? Where did that come in?
1: Well, I was late to the game. Um, when I graduated college, was when the first patents came out uh, for for additive manufacturing, three D printing, and I'd never even heard about it. I wasn't exposed to. We didn't have a you know an easy way of looking things up in those days. It, it wasn't in the Thomas Register. It wasn't in the encyclopedias. So we really didn't become aware of it. Uh, a lot of folks at that time, um, and and industries that were investing in it were you know aerospace companies and people that really didn't share a lot of what they were doing with the technology that early along. So it wasn't until um, I started at Reebok and uh, worked there for several years before. I first was exposed to it. I'd already been a machinist and built uh, tooling for molds and and parts for shoes for many years. And then I finally heard about 3D printing and thought, that's really something interesting. I need to learn more about it.
0: So what was interesting about it when it comes to kind of the footwear design?
1: Well, the parts that I was mostly focused on were midsoles and outsoles. And in athletic footwear, they were becoming more and more organic every day. They were not flat square blocks. They were things that you couldn't just hold in a fixture or in a, a vise. So as with some machining experience I already had, I knew that machining those would be very challenging. Uh, multiple tool setups, for the three-axis mill, you'd probably have to set the part four or five times to be able to machine all of the sides of it. You'd have to have very custom and specific jigs to hold it in place. So when I saw uh, what 3D printing provided and how it could... Uh, eliminate some of the needs for that um, with a fixturing engine because it, it basically could create quite a bit of different geometry without really having any any structure supports to it. That was something I wanted to to look into further.
0: And so, what was the was there kind of a three D printing group that was was started in Reebok? How, what was the kind of evolution no, was of me. that? Okay,
1: it was just me. I'm reading magazines and trying to find articles and trying to, to locate the information because we didn't have internet to search for it. At least we didn't have, have it at Reebok. So, and just for context, this is just before 19, uh, it was right before 1998, so right, right around 1997 was where the big search started. And I had to find it, you know, find it out by reading magazine articles and making phone calls. So I, did my research and found that there was a process that could make sense for Reebok. And it was a matter of, okay, now I have a great idea. How do I talk somebody else into it? And that's when I met with management and got a quick introduction to the, uh, the boardroom and the president of Reebok. And he, he was very happy to sit down with me, which still surprises me to this day. And I said, Hey, we should invest in this and showed a couple of sample parts I was able to acquire. And, told a pretty good story, I guess, because not too long after that, he, uh, he authorized the, the money to pay for our first lab, to build it out, to build the, 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 the space for it, to acquire the equipment, acquire the materials, and, uh, and get us started.
0: So what technologies were you starting with in some of those first days?
1: I looked at SLS or uh, powder bed fusion polymers first. Um, the reason why was I, I liked the idea of, the, of nylon as a material being white, which is as odd as that sounds was pretty important to us at the time, but it also was pretty solid, pretty rigid. It could take a, take some abuse um, and it also didn't require support for those that are familiar with, with uh, powder bed fusion polymers, the powder around the part access the support. So when you put a layer down and you, and you do your, your, uh, your fusion of the, of the powder, the powder that isn't fused just sits there and holds it in place. For the next layer. So, without having supports, it made design of the of the parts very easy because we weren't designing for the process; we were designing for the part.
0: So, what went into your kind of business case early on to buy the machine? Like, was at, at that time were there many service bureaus like today? Like the the it, it, I'm guessing for many companies, the the cost equation to buy versus outsource kind of parts. Um, it's getting closer, right? Because there's so many different options of of, of printers and, and, and service bureaus that you can get parts from. But what did you have to do to kind of convince management to, to go down this path?
1: Well, number one, management wasn't well-educated in this particular prospect. Um, so it wasn't that I had to fight too hard to, to convince them that we needed to own it. Um, the business case was pretty simple for us. We looked at service bureaus, but Now our IP or information was going to be outside of our space. And in fashion footwear and sports footwear, IP is pretty important. Secondarily, um, we talked a lot about speed. Um, To get a a sample physical model of a part um, before we had this, it took up to 30 days to get a sample part to see if the design looked right, to make your decision. And a lot of times if it took 30 days to get that you need to make a decision whether you like it or not. <laughs> so you'd get the part and go, "Oof, it's not what I want, but it'll be fine. Um, and and our, our thought was, if we could do the prototypes much more quickly, when they see the first round, they could say, "Oof, you know, that's not exactly what I want. Let's make one change or two changes. We can still get it done quickly. And it's time to market. You know, in a fashion kind of business, your, your time to market is crucial. If it takes you 18 months to put a shoe out, you can do it in 12. That's a pretty big win. So that was our our business model. Cost-wise, it wasn't the top of the list for us to worry about. It was really that time and that and that uh, being able to maintain IP. Yeah,
0: and so I imagine even if you were in that same position today with all the new machines and things out there, you'd probably make the same decision because that the, those. The IP and, and speed makes so much sense, more sense internally.
1: Right. The argument would probably be very much the same. The decision of which technology may have, may shift a mm-hmm. little bit, but ultimately um, keeping, keeping the IP and then, and then getting faster to market uh, would, would always be the right sell pitch, I think, for, for prototypes in footwear. Now we know things have changed a bit and some footwear companies are doing actual final parts that they're being put into shoes. That business model changes a little bit.
0: And so did the uh, you know, business case grow or the the capabilities grow over time? So you started with SLS and, and nylon, kind of where did the technology go over the time that you were there?
1: We had two big um, improvements while I was there that really changed things a lot for us. One was that, you know, currently in, in the SLS process at that time, you could do a flexible as well as a rigid material, the nylon, but also a, a, a more flexible material. Um, the flexible material was very difficult to run, but it did work and we were able to, to utilize it on occasion. Um, but the biggest breakthrough, I think, was circling back to time. Um, there was a company that started working on a system that used binder jetting to uh, produce parts out of, uh, it was actually a, a, a spinoff of MIT, and they called it Z Corp. And you could produce a part that would take seven hours in SLS, which is still better than 30 days, but now you got it down to two hours or an hour and a half. That's a huge jump. And um, it made us, gave us the opportunity to invest in, in that process pretty quickly when it first came out. And it was a great success for us. The second big change was when Z Corp again started providing color. Color was a real breakthrough. Um, you know, I, I used to define, used to describe it as saying that, well, when, he, when he, color came into the equation, it added another dimension for us. Because the minute that an engineer could see it in color, you know, the, the marketing folks, the, the, the program manager, all the folks that were involved in it, they were able to see it much more clearly. When it's a single color, white part or black part or whatever, there's a loss in in understanding where the where things fit together and how they look as a final part. But we could now do it in color and actually apply texture, you know graphically onto the part and make it look much more realistic. Uh, and that was a, a big success for us. Of course, with that, you have to recognize that Corp wasn't making the final material for a bottom unit. They were making it out of plaster. So when you make something that looks extremely realistic, we were spending a bit of time replacing the broken ones because they would constantly try to flex them and, and see how it felt when you bent it. And it's like, you do know this is plaster, right?
0: I imagine <laughs> tricks yeah. the eye to, um, and, and so as kind of, you've had all these experiences, where you're working with your hands, different machines, kind of, um, both machining and now into the 3d printing realm, kind of, how did that help? kind of operating the systems to communicate kind of how the technology works and what kind of the benefits and limitations are with kind of the designers, the engineers, management that you were working with?
1: We had some communication with them. They they knew right away when they saw the parts that they, they had limitations and what they could use them for. They always complained that the, the plaster parts are heavy. It's like, well, yeah, they are. <laughs> and when we introduced color, we couldn't say we'll make it in any color you want because the Z-Core process to get an exact color match sometimes took a few experiments, a few attempts to get the exact color match. And rather than go through that, we provided them a palette of colors and saying, you can have any color you want as long as it's on this this little plaque. And that plaque was simply a quick print of the base colors um, that the software put out with no tweaking so that we knew we'd get the same color every time. And this is your limit to colors, but if they were willing to wait, we could do custom colors. And in the entire time I was there, if I had more than four requests for the, ultimately we had to make probably four models that we had to match a color the rest of the time. And I'm talking thousands and thousands of parts. We didn't have to match colors. They were happy with the colors we provided.
0: And so kind of you've spent a number of years at Reebok and what, was the the exact number of years and you want know, to talk about kind of that transition to the next next thing after that?
1: Sure. I was with Reebok for 21 years. Okay. Um, it was, it was a, a great opportunity, not just to do um, you know added manufacturing and supporting that and supporting the, the CAD team, but also I did a lot of footwear development. Um, there's a lot of uh, shoes out there that I had my hand in helping to develop um, some you may recognize and a good portion of them you probably will never see because they were done for the South American market. Um, but time came to, to realize that uh, to continue my career, I really need to make a, a choice and focus on something specific and footwear was great. And, and, you know, I kept hearing my dad's voice saying, why are you in footwear? Um, but I really loved everything about added manufacturing. You know, I was, I was able to, Get involved in it early, but I was also uh, it opened a door for a number of relationships through uh, organizations that that really made it such a, a a wonderful experience. I didn't want it to end, so um, I decided to transition out of footwear into focus solely on, on additive manufacturing and supporting the industry and trying to make it a better a better place for everybody.
0: And was that about the time you were? Got involved with with Amug is around that time, or was that before? Well, still?
1: before, before I I got involved with Amug uh, pretty early along. It was only a year or two into using the technology when we we were having the trouble everybody has when they first start using it. It it doesn't work the way the sales guy told you, um, and we needed to get better at it. And there wasn't a lot of training opportunities. There wasn't a lot of support uh, that was easily available. So we had to start looking for it and a suggestion um, from a good friend of, you should check out the user group that's out there. And um, we started making some in- inquiries into the user group, found out there was one for at that time, specifically at SLS. And we joined that, like I said, just a couple of years in and became involved very, very quickly and found just roomfuls of people that were having the same kind of things we were having, some solutions we needed to find, they were there and they were willing to share it and it made things even much more fun. And then when that user group ultimately combined to form AMOG, um, just the opportunity to continue working with that organization, getting more and more involved um, was a great way not only to still leverage what they provided, but then also to be able to give back to it because to get things from AMUG is great. It's a huge help for, for, for your, your work. But at some point, you've got to realize it's time to give back, and that's with time and, and volunteer uh, volunteer work to to go back. And that's when I get much more involved.
0: Even I mean, probably skip ahead in terms of years, so not exactly timeline. But if you were you spent what, two terms as as president of Amo.
1: Yep, uh, I was I was president uh, for two terms, and um, now I'm now I'm still sitting in the position of past president.
0: And so, what's that like? Is is that kind of uh, the? I think you're. We've had Mark on, so we've had multiple presidents of of Amug on um, yeah. on the show. So um, we know a little bit, but kind of maybe a couple words on kind of your experience over that time in terms of sitting in the president's chair. What was some of the challenges? What were some of the unexpected kind of benefits of of, of seeing Amug from kind of both that kind of microscopic view as well as probably 30,000 foot view.
1: Well, I think you're going to get maybe a different answer from everybody that's been president of Amug. At least I would think you would. Um, I know Mark's answer probably be very different than mine, but what I discovered was is, is that as much as I thought I knew about the different parts of Amug because I was involved for many years, um, once you get to be president, when you find out really how, how it truly works from top to bottom, who's doing the work? Um, what type of, of caliber of people that you're going to be exposed to from, from the level of the, the rest of the volunteers that are on the board and, and, and just volunteer during the event. Um, and they're all tremendously talented people that are very, very focused on, uh, supporting the industry. Some of the other stuff I found was that, um, you can't make everybody happy and they will make sure you know it. Um, let me see what else would be really good. The other part I think was that that you're never alone. Um, as president, I would come across situations that I either wasn't sure I need I, I how to approach it, or I was uh, felt uncomfortable, or even a little overwhelmed by it. And the rest of the the board and and just users out there, I reached out to it just saying, hey, you know, what? Give, give me some advice. They were always there for me, and that was really helpful too.
0: And you were, I mean. That was probably what is three, four years ago that you were kind of in in that role now, or maybe I'm losing yeah. track. But um, I mean, that was also a pretty big inflection point for the the industry, right? I mean, like a lot of addition, more companies kind of coming in, and the the conference grew as well yeah. during that time.
1: Yeah, during my time, we really saw the biggest growth. And it, believe me, it has nothing to do with the fact that I was president. <laughs> but we saw a significant amount of growth because the industry was really starting to become um, well-known. It was, it was a lot more exposure to it. A lot more people were getting into it. Younger engineers that were getting through school now had been exposed to it and, and were uh, trying to adopt it uh, more often. So I think that was what led to a lot of the growth of it. And, and as, as a user group, obviously, you need to be a user to attend. And just the, the solid growth in the user base, more and more people doing it led to that growth. Um, due to COVID, of course, things have changed. Um, but I fully expect uh, once, once travel and, and, and people open up and businesses are back to normal, we're going to see that, that growth start up again and continue to grow even more so.
0: For sure. And exciting to have it back in Chicago I'm spoiled by the fact that it's been here like five last, last six times or something like that not not that much but it, not that much no
1: like but <laughs> my Chicago travel expenses have
0: been uh, nice and low because of that yeah um, so I mean speaking of Chicago I mean from 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 Reebok to you moved kind of out to the Midwest and and we're at UL that's where we, can, we cross paths a number of times. Right. So you know, talk a little bit about that, that transition and, and what you were doing there.
1: Well, I, when I left Reebok, you know, to find the right, um, the right opportunity that made sense for me, that allowed me to, to um, really look at supporting the industry as a whole and, and helping users get better, helping, helping OEMs get better, helping everybody get better was, was, a goal i had put for myself and when the opportunity ul presented itself it made a lot of sense for me uh, i got a chance to get into training and providing training and being an instructor and uh, that was a huge uh, shift in my career but i couldn't ask for anything better because it was just a, really a lot of fun and every single student i've taught and there may be one or two that actually watches this they, um, they were awesome, and I, I appreciate every one of them because they, they made me better every time I taught a course. But on top of that, with facility safety and some of the other UL programs that were put together, we really were able to start to look at how the industry can grow and move toward a production environment from a prototyping environment. And I got a chance to really get involved in that early and, and support that, and that was, that was an awful lot of fun too.
0: And that's a pretty interesting perspective to have like that kind of goal to kind of further the industry and so it's kind of going from the user side to maybe kind of in in this intermediary kind of integrator kind of um, side with UL you where you're talking to, um, end users, you're talking to equipment manufacturing, material suppliers, like all of them need to be in these conversations, even standards organizations, right? Like like it's the, the industry doesn't necessarily go forward with, with any one of those missing. And so kind of being in that middle, middle part is um, uh, kind of give, gives certainly a very unique perspective.
1: It actually does. And it's interesting how it opens up even more opportunity to interact with people, um, because as a user, you've only got a certain amount of interaction with, with other users that are outside your business or outside what you do. And, um, and also, you're, you're a customer to the OEM, so your exposure to them is still pretty limited. Um, you know, once I got to UL and I started interacting with OEMs more, really becoming more of a support to them versus, versus a, a target audience uh, as a customer made a big difference. In those relationships, and and certainly with being able to go from a medical company to an aerospace company to all these different places that that um, a sneaker guy typically doesn't get to go to, um, was really eye opening for me, and also a, a chance again to to look at how we can support those industries in moving forward with with the technology.
0: And I add in too at the same time, like the experience you've had in operating equipment and bringing in equipment, using equipment. Like uh, the same challenges, whether you're making shoes or making parts that go on a B two bomber, like there are, there are, um, there, are, there are certainly similarities uh, across that that whole materials and process and standards side of things. That kind of the 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 context, the background may be different, but like the underlying challenges remain the same.
1: You no, know, I, I agree one hundred percent. Um, you're still talking about the same layer thicknesses and laser powers and, and extrusion speeds and nozzle diameters. It's, it all is the same conversation.
0: And so, I mean, kind of sticking with that theme, um, kind of spent a number of years at UL kind of also in in kind of the standard space. Um, Today, you're talking to me from kind of the position at at ASTM. So, kind of what, what do you do now in terms of, kind of maybe like even take a step back of kind of for those who may not be familiar, kind of what is ASTM and then kind of how did you end up there and, and, and what are you doing?
1: Well, I've been with ASTM for just, just short of two years now. And what I found is how little I knew about ASTM before I joined. Um, It's a very interesting organization. They've been around for over a hundred years in in the development of standards uh, for just about every industry you touch on, whether it's it's medical, it's oil and gas, it's it's concrete, it's you, it, everything is it's pretty unlimited the number of areas they touch on. And what I found is that, you know, they're not a, they don't write standards, they facilitate the creation of standards. Mm-hmm. The standards that are created by ATM are created by um, industry experts that have joined and, and got involved in the standard creation and people that really want to be included in that process of developing the standards. And and it's a, a process they call consensus standards, meaning that these individuals all get together and start c- drafting the standard and then they have to um, complete it and vote on it uh, through a balloting process to make sure it's something that they all agree to. And that's a consensus standard. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, it actually can take quite a bit of time to do this type of creation of a standard. but. Uh, ASTM created a center of excellence for additive manufacturing to, to look at how they could, again, support the industry by getting the standards created a little bit quicker through a, a concept of research to standard or providing the support for the research side so that we can, through our partners, get the research done to help get these standards uh, facilitated quicker uh, to, again, support going to a production environment for for the using the technology.
0: So the idea is, like, you have there's certainly industry needs that kind of need standardization, but in order to make that standard, you have to generate some data and yeah. have some facilities or resources to do that. So ASTM helps in, in that sense as, or the partners in the center of excellence help with, with facilitating that so that the subject matter experts or whoever's making the standards can, can say, Hey, we need data on this material set or this machine and and, and that'll help with the standard. Is that kind of the idea?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, the idea is to, to really, whatever, you know, whatever can be done to accelerate it as a, as a, as an ASTM employee, we can't influence the standard, can't create it, but we can certainly support the process in any way possible to get it there to quicker because that ultimately helps the end user, um, whether it is an additive or not, because when you're doing any kind of manufacturing, you have to manufacture to something, to a measurement, to a standard. Um, and without those standards to make things much more difficult.
0: And how does uh, ASTM find the, I guess, like is the focus member driven? I mean, there's, I mean, there's at least seven kind of families of technologies, but then within that there's dozens of types and iterations on, on different types of equipment and different materials. So it, it seems, uh, uh, an ever-growing pool of things to to try and standardize or try to at least pick kind of what's what's most popular what needs the most demand in terms of standardization so so how does how does that process of like focus or prioritization take place
1: um, from what I understand it's it is it is member driven um, and that's why in some cases there may be uh, a bit more of a focus on one area or one one technology or one material type over another, simply because that's what what the members or or the industry is putting the most most uh, oil on that squeaky that squeaky wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, is as, as when people ask me why is where's why is this not this standard not not available, uh, the answer is well you know maybe you should uh, get involved with ASTM and and help support that happening in the future because as a user or as a member of ASTM you can you can certainly help facilitate getting that, that standard or help push to get that standard created um, for sure.
0: And so what specifically are, are you working on in, in terms of ASTM?
1: My goal or my, my target right now with ASTM is to, to, you know, continue with that education and workforce development. We know that as much as I was desperate for training uh, when I was early into, into using additive manufacturing, there's still a need for training now. Um, and with it moving toward a production environment, the training is even more important to be, to be, uh, more standardized or more to standards. Um, you know, the, in the early days of training, you know, you, you learned how to break a part out using a brush to, to remove the loose powder, but you know, it was a prototype and nobody cared in production. Can you use a brush? What kind of brush? What can it be made from? What can't it be made from? And that's where those little bits of information where you can reach to a standard or reach to a, a, a best practices really helps a lot. And that type of training is, um, is really important. And that's what we get to work on. Um, the great thing about the ASTM training is that we are leveraging a lot of industry experts to be the trainers, to be the, the ones that deliver the content and help help create the content. And we have a, a education workforce development advisory board that actually reviews the content and vets it out so that we really are delivering the the best content. Um, and my job is to help facilitate all those moving parts to get the the training actually uh, put together and, and and delivered.
0: So, is this something that is is credentialed by ASTM? Like you can get a ASTM certification for X and Y.
1: You can get a certificate uh, okay. for. We have a general uh, a, a general additive manufacturing certificate course. Um, that we provide uh, a few times a year. Uh, one's actually coming up very soon, and uh, you get a, you get a, a certificate for that. Also, we've got some more advanced trainings uh, where, they're, where they're role-based, and you get a certificate for taking those, and you can become a, 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 like for quality assurance, you get a quality assurance certificate for for taking the quality assurance course, or if it's um, a safety course, you can get a certificate for that, and some of the other courses like cybersecurity are, are becoming available as well.
0: So who's the typical audience for these? Is it someone who's already experienced with, like is in a company with, with 3D printing, someone that's like upskilling or kind of wh- where are you guys targeting? Or where do you see, maybe a better question is, kind of where do you see the, the growth in terms of finding that kind of additive workforce of the future?
1: Well, I think as, as roles are better defined, um, that's going to help put together kind of a target audience for for some of our trainings. Right now, our trainings are really, you know, openly available to anybody. But what we find is that um, some folks are better suited to, to kind of get a taste or an introduction to it. So we have webinars we put on every month uh, mm-hmm. to kind of give that introduction to some of the t- terms and topics. And then once they've taken a few of those, they may want to move into the general certificate course. But if you're Really well experienced. The, the certificate course is good for you because it covers the entire um, process from start to finish, with design, with feedstock, um, with testing, non-destructive testing. All those are in it so that you get a real wider swath of, of additive manufacturing over that, 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 uh, that education period. You're not, you're not just getting one little course, you're getting you know all the different segments, which I think everybody could could uh, could utilize that information.
0: Is this a combination of, of, of both online and in-person or like different courses yeah. have different components or.
1: The webinars are, are obviously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. But the um, general certificate course uh, initially was delivered face to face and then due to COVID, we moved it all to online. But now we're transitioning back to face to face again because training that's delivered face-to-face has much better effective rate than one that's delivered online. And it's not due to instructors or even to the students. It's that interactive piece that you get. Um, in all the years I did training, there was so much interaction and the course really would kind of adapt to the room sometimes where you, know, you get a lot of questions and leading in one direction. You could, the course would kind of veer off course tiny bit to, to co- accomplish that piece of course, obviously circling back to uh, to the main topic, but it gave you that flexibility um, when you read the room and you get a lot of questions as you're as you're presenting as you're teaching, and then we you know within the the hands-on uh, face-to-face type of course, uh, there's always opportunities to to stop and to review certain items or or you know you know address a certain particular issue that somebody might be having,
0: and it's one of those things too where the People who are likely to take this course, I imagine like working with their hands, like holding, touching, seeing stuff in, in real person, in, in real life. And, and that probably is a little bit easier to, even if you can show a part, maybe you're not taken out of a powder bed or something like you can show a part and and talk about overhangs or things like that in person, that just a little bit easier for, for someone to capture than,
1: yeah. Then in a webinar. We have yeah we typically have whiteboards and and various things mm-hmm. where 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 it's stopped. Hey wait a minute that part you had on the screen bring it back up. All right now mm-hmm. show me how you did the supports or tell me about why you know, the, the orientation was this particular way or or how the the layering affected the end result of this part and just being able to answer those questions and show them graphically with, a, with like, again with a whiteboard or just waving your arms around well, oftentimes makes a big difference in the training. Sure.
0: And we, it, it, it's one of those things too, where like we did a kind of a small kind of pilot training um, course this summer in the West side of Chicago. And the thing I took away from it was all, all the things that, that you mentioned, but I think the familiarity, like we take for granted, like knowing names like Renishaw and EOS. And I mean, you ask the average person, like they're not, that's not Amazon. That's not Boeing or Target or something or Starbucks, right? And so just the nomenclature of like, hey, like there's this whole almost not a subculture, but like culture around added manufacturing that has that's all these different names is is eye-opening to people. And like you say, hey, that's a billion dollar, couple billion dollar industry or a few billion dollar industry, that there's all these opportunities there. That that was something I kind of took for granted, um, just being kind of immersed in it in a daily basis.
1: No, I agree. It's you know, we as as I get more experienced in additive when I meet someone it's their first day or first week and they've never seen it or heard it before, um it really makes me think for a minute, wait a minute, I was that guy. <laughs> At one point I knew nothing and it's it's great to to be given that refresher of what it's like to to need to to learn the basics and and to understand the terminology and the and uh different topics that, that or questions that can come up during that process for
0: sure. And so kind of as we kind of wind down kind of the interview, like what are some of the things that are on your radar for 2022, what's exciting, what are you looking forward to any kind of cool events that ASTM or projects that you're working on that you can kind of speak to or, or want to share with the
1: community? Sure. Well, number one, I still have fun every day and I look forward to it simply because of that. Um, But some of the upcoming stuff that I'm looking forward to this year certainly will be AMUG because, you know, I'm still a part of that. And I I thoroughly enjoy that event in Chicago this year. Um, But some of the other big events I look forward to as well. And in the the fall, um, ASTM is going to be putting on their their ICAM event or International Conference for Outer Manufacturing. And it's a it's a very different event. Uh, I say that because I've been to only one so far, uh, my first, and I was exposed to um, a different level of, of understanding for added manufacturing, uh, but the majority of the speakers, and there's tons of speakers. I think there's like over five or 600 um, speaking, above us, uh, speaking opportunities through the week. And they touch on very, very targeted areas, whether it might be aerospace or, or it might be in um, cybersecurity or construction or polymers. But they have, there's I like think 20, 24, or 25 different different categories uh, or symposiums, as we call them. Um, and they're deep dive ones. They're researchers. There's the, the people that are inventing something new that presented this course. It's very high level and scientific. And it's, you know, I'm not, I'm no scientist, but I just, it gives me an opportunity to kind of geek out all over again, when it comes to additive in, in some ways, like it's my first time seeing it. Uh, it's a really great event. And I think that's probably the one I'm looking forward to most. Uh, again, it'll be face-to-face in in, in Orlando uh, this year. And it's right, right. Uh, it actually starts, I think on Halloween, which is, which is fun. I'm trying to talk everybody into wearing costumes so far. That's not working out, but I'm going to keep trying.
0: Hey, you can always wear a costume, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Aren't I always wearing one? <laughs> that's right.
0: Uh, awesome. So I guess last question I like to ask this of, of everybody that, that comes on, um, kind of put yourself back in the shoes of, of being the person that may not know much about additive or, or trying to maybe further their career with some different training or upskilling, like what kind of advice do you give someone that's early on in their, um, career path when it comes to to 3d printing and additive manufacturing?
1: Well, I think going back to my earlier comments about how how hard it was to find training. Um, for those that are starting out, uh, pursue training, find it. Um, don't rely on the OEM, though their trainings are all good. They're usually very narrow banded. They teach you about their equipment and their device, but there's so much more to additive, whether it's um, designed for additive, whether it's, it's uh, managing feedstock, uh, whether it's, it's non-destructive testing, part finishing, post-processing, there's all sorts of areas that really kind of need to live on their own when it comes to training. Uh, pursue those trainings and, and pursue ways to learn more about it. Um, I assure you, no matter if you've been in the industry for a year, or in my case, close to 24 years, you're never gonna stop learning about it. Um, I, I again, I look forward to ICANN because that's my one way of learning all kinds of stuff I've never even thought of before. Uh, but But learn and continue to seek out training and and don't forget the most important thing is in my opinion added manufacturing is a very fun industry to be in it is one of the most close-knit ones i've ever belonged to and i would recommend to anybody who has the interest in it to stick with it and get involved and um, look beyond what you're making today and and look to what can be made and what the future holds for the industry itself awesome well always good to catch up paul thanks so much for joining the show today. Oh, thanks, Mike. Anytime.